Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the second edition of Digital Detectives, brought to you by our terrific sponsor, Applied Discovery, an international leader in electronic discovery. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, we'll be talking to one of the best and most respected computer forensic technologists in the country, and our good friend, Craig Ball. Welcome, Craig. Hi, John. Hi, Sharon. Thanks for having me in your new series. I'm very flattered. Well, we're really glad to have you here, Craig. And normally I'd make a big introduction, but with you, I think it's a waste of your valuable time since almost everybody knows who you are. So let me just start off with some of the questions that we had for you so that we can maximize your time with us. And to quote you on yourself, Craig, you have been known to say good-naturedly that you are often wrong but seldom in doubt. Now, I dispute the often wrong part, but I know you are indeed seldom in doubt. So let's open with one of your many pet peeves, the conversion of electronically stored information into TIFF, which means tagged image file format for our listeners who may not know. Why does this get your knickers in such a twist? Well, very simply, it's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. And those are two things that we don't have enough of in electronic discovery. I appreciate that there are many people who long to go back to the days of paper, but I think as as you two know better than most in the country, those days are gone, and TIFF is really not that much different. It's taking very usable, searchable, and efficient electronically stored information and reducing it to the dumbest, most cumbersome form I can imagine. The reasons that are given for this are largely insufficient, and they typically boil down to one thing only, and that is lawyers just can't stand to let go of the Bates number. That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I mean, it it's true. You know, you know what I'm talking about better than, as I say, better than most. This is dumb. And now let me, I don't mean to interrupt you, John, but I, it's, it's, it's done in so many dumb ways, and I want to be clear about it. When there's a wholesale conversion of electronically stored information to TIFF before the lawyers even look at it, before it's being reviewed for responsiveness and privilege, that is malpractice. Let's not put it too fine a point on it. It's malpractice for a lawyer to do that. It's as though a lawyer said to a client, we're going to take everything you have on white paper and we're going to copy it to pink or canary before we agree to look at it. It makes just that little sense. Now, if the parties agree to it, and at the end of the road, they want TIFF and load files, and that works best for them, more power to them. But if once, if the requesting party wants native, I feel it's overreaching, and it is uh, obstructive in some instances to insist upon production of TIFF. Well, we, cer- we certainly know uh, that you have an opinion on that, Craig, and, and, I, ser- and I share it with you as well. But I-, I know the second pet peeve of yours is the fact that some courts, notably some of the courts in Texas, uh, define computer forensic analysis as just running keyword searches. If you could tell them what computer forensic analysis really is, what would you say, and why do you think some courts get it so wrong? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm sure that it burns you up in, in the same way it burns me up. And I'm now, unfortunately, I, I was the uh, innocent bystander in some of these cases where, where the courts have reached these conclusions, being either appointed special master or forensic examiner, when the court decided 
that the judge's approach was wrong. As you know very well, what we do as forensic examiners goes much beyond running searches. In fact, many of my investigations involve a very small component of running searches. What we're doing is we're analyzing the bits and bytes. We're analyzing those trails of usage in order to translate them reliable into human behavior. Did something? Did someone destroy something? What did they do? When did they do it? Can we reliably define their motivation in terms of what happened? Was it mechanical or was it evil? Uh, my favorite quote is always going back to Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said that even a dog can tell the difference between being kicked and being stumbled over. And I think a lot of what computer forensics requires us to do is determine whether someone has been kicked or stumbled over. And that kicking, that mens re, that evil intent, is not often going to be seen just from keyword searches. It's going to be gleaned from looking in a temporal way, in a time-ordered way, at what somebody did, what they looked at, what they searched. We're going to tell that from such things as link files, from analysis of the registry, from prefetch activity, buzzwords you well understand, John, and I'm sure you'd agree with me that just tying the hands of a capable and experienced forensic examiner to running a few often ineptly fashioned keyword searches from the lawyers is wasting everyone's time and everyone's money. Definitely agree there, Craig. It it it, uh, it draws to mind the 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 point and click action, if you will, and and not so much of an analysis as as just uh, running through the steps of uh, and motion of searching. We we call that point and click computer forensics, and and we don't like it either. Uh, but I didn't know that Oliver Wendell Holmes quote. I'm going to have to look that one up. That's very good. Isn't that a beauty? I wish I could claim that as my own. <laughs> uh, me too. <laughs> but since we can uh, can't, uh, what what we often hear you bemoan is what you refer to as waste in electronic discovery. Can you? define what constitutes waste in your mind and why you think there's so little movement uh, in getting rid of it? Well, the cynic in me says that those who would be most effective in getting rid of it are often those who are most benefited by the waste. I mean, the waste is often expressed in terms of fees to vendors and fees to lawyers. And those are the two constituencies that are best situated to say enough is enough. Instead, it's going to have to rely upon the, the in, in the hands of the clients themselves. They're going to have to look hard at how the lawyers have been telling them to do these things, at how the vendors have been encouraging them to proceed and say, wait a second, this is ridiculous. Well, let me give you an example that it's just not my soapbox we're on here. I, I recently did a webcast for the State Bar of Texas, and I, I had what you might call it a dream team of participants. Of course, it can't be the true deep dream team because you two weren't on it. But I had uh, <laughs> Judge, Judge Paul Grimm from Maryland, who's of course well known to, uh, to all of us in the legal dis- e-discovery space. I had Ariana Tadler from Milburg, George Socia, famously of the EDRM, and Ralph Losey of his blogs and books and so forth. So, I mean, no, there's are some of the people who are most closely in touch with e-discovery issues in the nation. And they all agreed that about 70% of the money spent on e-discovery was waste, and about 70% of that waste was attributable to lawyer ignorance. Now, that is an amazing consensus, isn't it? It truly is. 
What does that mean, that 49% of the money spent on e-discovery is waste laid entirely at the feet of lawyers who have simply not bothered to learn how to do their jobs with evidence better than they should? And we should hang our heads as members of this profession in, in some shame that we have devoted so much of our energies to saying, uh, I don't have to learn this. I can hire somebody to do this. Uh, I can just throw keywords at the wall and hope something sticks and, and that that's going to work because I know the judges don't really get it and my opponents don't really get it and I'm able to scare the pants off my clients. So this all works. That's got to change. We owe it to our clients to change it. Well, I certainly agree. But as you know, Craig, no matter how often sometimes even the experts try to get the lawyers to do the right thing, uh, we get told that we have our orders and that's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> yes, and that's what made the trains run time on time in Germany during the Second World War. But I don't hold that up as a model of how we want to proceed. I think we have time for one more question before our break, John. Sure. Um, it's kind of a good segue, Craig. We've been kicking around the, the searching issue here, whether it's uh, in the computer forensic arena or, as, as you said, just having some attorneys throw some keywords out there. And, and it really has become a really big issue these days. We, And I'm sure you see this as well. Most of the searches are, are done by keywords, and we get a, a minor amount that's done maybe with some concept searching or some other sort of artificial intelligence type of a thing. But what, what do you see as the greatest challenges of of searching and, and not just that it's searching in and of itself all by itself, but what are some of those challenges? There are many. And as you know, the Blair and Marin study going back to the mid eighties uh, showed that lawyers had an inflated view of their skills where keyword search was concerned. Lawyers polled with regard to a group of data that they knew very well, anticipated that they would be able to hit about 75% of that data using keywords. And we're very surprised to find that their real-world performance was closer to 20%. Interestingly, we haven't seen dramatic changes in that performance. But organizations like the National Institute for Standards and Technologies uh, in its legal text retrieval conference efforts have been showing us the way to improving the quality of that score. Among those is accounting for misspellings working closely with subject matter experts, and that here means the custodians of the evidence themselves in evaluating what's responsive, uh, and doing such things, most importantly, is working in an iterative and transparent approach, working together and understanding you can go back to the well a time or two more as you learn about the proper keywords and the noisy keywords, as you begin to get a real feel for how people spoke about information in an organization, the quality of the search goes up dramatically. I mean, we're talking up 40, 60% versus that original 20% ignorant search. So iterative, accounting for misspellings, accounting and anticipating the uh, oddities of language, which are, are rife, will go a long way in getting you to something like a reasonable return on your search investment. Well, that, that's great, Craig. And before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Applied Discovery. Applied Discovery, a global leader in complex litigation preparation and management, combines subject matter expertise and innovative e-discovery technology in a complete 
a proven process. From litigation readiness to collection, analytics, processing, document review, and production services, we manage your entire process with dedicated project managers to ensure quality and workflow efficiency. With our team, including former practicing attorneys and technology experts, Applied Discovery can help you successfully navigate the challenges of complex discovery. Discover Applied Discovery today at AppliedDiscovery.com. Need the latest on e-discovery-related topics? Check out our new e-discovery center right here on the Legal Talk Network. You'll find podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more. Just visit our homepage at LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the eDiscovery Center logo. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we are talking to Craig Ball about some of the current issues in computer forensics that most interest him. Thanks so much for joining us today, Craig. You are never a shrinking violet, and your opinions are always just so candidly expressed. I can't tell you how much we enjoy the color you add to our show. Well, thank you, Sharon. It's a great pleasure for me to be here. I can't think of two people I'd rather be talking with this afternoon. Being with you would be better, but we'll have to stick with the podcast format. And aboard ship, (laughs) a cruise would be better still, wouldn't it? Uh, Yeah, you got it, man. We're still working on that cruise, but I'm counting on you, Craig. (laughs) Although we we do see some use of neutral uh, computer forensic examiners, it sure strikes us as as pretty rare. In fact, we're appalled at how often we see a court order one side's expert to examine the other side's computers, and sometimes without any restrictions at all. I'm clearly climbing on my own soapbox, Craig but I know you'd probably like to share it with me. I would. I I can't agree with you more. It's a problem, and and I've seen a number of cases around the nation, and and when I blog, I often comment on these. As as we know, hard drives are really like file cabinets or more akin to really file rooms in terms of the volume of which they can hold. And the notion of we're going to simply turn over everything to the other side without some compelling reason – I mean, we're not talking about a situation where it's been shown that the producing party cannot be trusted to deal fairly in discovery or that they are actively destroying information. Uh, some of these efforts are, are fishing expeditions. Some of them are grounded purely on suspicion with nothing more, the sense of, well, there must have been more email. Now, when there's a sound reason to need to turn to computer forensics, it should be done. You and I know that computer forensics is often the case-making or case-breaking technology. Nothing can get to the truth uh, better or faster than a properly applied computer forensic examination. But all that said, all of us have things that are nobody else's business and that don't bear on cases. We have privileged communications. We have family communications. We have medical communications and things that are just flat personal or or uh, passwords, etc. Turning that over to the other side is not fair. Instead, it should be turned over to someone who won't be inclined to exploit the things that have no legitimate bearing in the case. And for that, I advocate the use of a neutral examiner, someone who, who is well-instructed about what they're looking for, who is reasonably bounded, but still able to disclose matters that go to the integrity of the process, the destruction of evidence, the hiding of evidence, and so forth, but isn't going to be bound to turn over information that is irrelevant but embarrassing that may provide some level of leverage. 
So I wrote a, an open letter to judges not long ago and published it, and it, and it advocated that judges rethink their quickness to turn over a computer hard drive to an opponent's forensic examiner. Now, I know forensic examiners who wrote me back and said, there's no problem with that. I, I have integrity. I have ethics. And I'm not going to provide my client with something that my client's not entitled to. But, you know, if your client says, give it to me, what is your purpose and how can you justify resisting except based upon your own personal moral compass? And sometimes our own personal moral compasses are, are not enough to protect these issues. So think about neutrals. Try to work out neutrals. Agree on somebody who can do the job and understand that properly done, it's cheaper because a well-chosen, competent neutral can do the work that will necessarily have to be done alternatively by one opponent and then the other side has to often hire their own forensic examiner to evaluate and challenge. It certainly is cheaper and faster, Craig. We agree. And a few times uh, we've been a neutral and it's it's really when, when people are cooperating, <laughs> not to bring Sedona into it, but when they are cooperating, it's just extraordinary how much money and time they save. Exactly. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't choose a bad examiner or examiners can't make errors and even a neutral can go off the rails. I don't put it forward as a panacea, but I think it's the smarter, safer, fairer approach in many instances. Yeah, I, I agree with that as, as well, Craig. So you touched a little bit about on, on this in, in the early part here, but most folks believe that computer forensic primarily deals with the, the artifacts found in the unallocated clusters. And I've heard you comment that the mindset is, is shifting, where, where most of the important and relevant data is typically found in the active data areas. Would you give us some more insight into this trend? Well, I don't know if mindsets generally are shifting, but certainly my own has shifted since the earliest days many years ago of my training. Back in those days, the notion is the magic that we brought to computer forensics was the ability to go into the, the um, landfill of deleted data, resurrect that information, and find the smoking gun. And there's still certainly value to that. But I found in recent years that because of the way computers are changing, particularly the way operating systems and their file systems are changing, with the immense amount of logging that goes on, with such things as, as you'll know this phrase, John, volume shadow copies, we're seeing mm -hmm. circumstances where increasingly information just doesn't go away. And if you know how to interpret it from the active data, from the data that would be available to any user if they understood how to parse and interpret what they were looking for, that's often where the answers are. I mentioned a few of those sources earlier, link files, registry entries, temp files, um, prefetch area data, certainly the recycler, even without going into the areas that are unallocated clusters or that landfill area, you can often tell a very compelling and, and accurate story about user activity. I think that's Def certainly definitely. true. Uh, and and it, it, the shift is interesting, and I, I think it's happened more in your mind, which is, of course, one of the pioneering minds, than it's happened at the, in the industry at large. Would you agree with that? Well, you give me too much credit in that. I walk in the shoes of giants who are, are people I deeply admire, particularly in the computer forensics area, but I otherwise agree with it. Yeah, they've been a little slow. Uh, we do want to thank you once again, Craig. There's never a time that we listen to you as often as we do without learning something. It's, it's an extraordinary education, and we sure look forward to getting that cruise together. 
That would be wonderful. Yeah, we, we certainly do. Thanks me. for being our, our guest, Craig. And if our audience wants more information about today's topic, how, how can they reach you? Well, they could start by looking at all of the information I publish on my website, which is craigball.com, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-L-L.com. They can also look at the blog to which I contribute, eddupdate.com, or my email is available on my website. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at www.legaltalknetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's Computer Forensics Technology and Security Services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.